We have now arrived at December 5th, and while I would like to write about International Ninja Day or World Soil Day or Krampus Nacht, my particular area to explore is growth and development and other topics that stem from being in a community that seems to be a place where a lot of people want to be. Charlottesville Community Engagement strives to bring listeners and readers as much information as possible. I'm Sean Tubbs, endlessly looking for more things to describe, but running out of time to do so. In this edition, Charlottesville's purchase of land along the Rivanna River is complete. City Council's trip to Montgomery County, Maryland to tour the transit system there will happen in January if it happens. And City Council has opted to make a major change to the development code less than a week before the public hearing. In today's first Patreon-supported public service announcement, all year long, WTJU Classical provides Charlottesville with a serene and inspiring musical oasis. The radio station now needs your support to keep this classical community vibrant and thriving. Please tune in now through December 10th for WTJU's Classical Marathon for 2023. It's a round-the-clock celebration of classical music specially programmed for your listening pleasure. Their classical celebration also features a tremendous lineup of guest hosts from Charlottesville's classical community, including Ben Rue from Charlottesville Symphony, Michael Sloan from University Singers and Oratorio Society, Miriam Gordon-Stewart from Victory Hall Opera, Leanne Clement of Charlottesville Opera, I. Jen Fang from UVA Music, and Fiona Hughes from Three Notched Road. And longtime WTJU host Michael Latsko returns for a special musical matchup. Please consider a gift today to keep WTJU going, WTJU.net. Tonight, Charlottesville City Council is holding their public hearing on the city's draft zoning code, which will increase the number of development rights across the city. The exact extent won't be known until after council holds their deliberations and makes their adjustments based on feedback received tonight. Council's decision to spend $5.9 million to extinguish the development rights of over 23.8 acres of land along the Rivanna River has now been fully implemented, as announced by City Manager Sam Sanders. Zero East High, the set of properties that we've been referencing is Zero East High, and it's been the source of a lot of conversation, is now officially owned by the City of Charlottesville. It will uh, maintain, be maintained as a passive recreation area until we are able to find some capacity to figure out what to become of it, but for now, now it'll be what it is, and you can all be happy that that's the case. Council made the decision to buy the property from developer Wendell Wood after ratifying a determination by the Planning Commission. In August, and again in September, that body concluded that some of the public facilities that would be constructed to support the proposed 245 units would not comply with the comprehensive plan. The contract also included a clause that any legal claims would not be pursued in court, as I reported on November 4th. The price per unit is about $24,081, according to a rough calculation. That's a relatively good deal compared to the $67,187 per unit that an entity associated with the Jefferson Scholars Foundation spent last November to buy 1.59 acres of land across from their headquarters. 
That property had been slated for 64 units, and that transaction was $4.3 million in total. A thought as the development code proceeds. Will other entities begin to buy up land in the city to prevent it from being developed? Tune in. Find out. Charlottesville City Manager Sam Sanders said last night that a date has not been scheduled for City Council to travel to a D.C. area community to inform their future decision about the future fuel source for Charlottesville area transit vehicles. A few weeks back, I announced that uh, Council had agreed to go on a site visit to Montgomery County, Maryland in regards to... um, taking a look at uh, some uh, work that had been done in that community for integrating uh, battery electric buses into their fleet. Sanders said scheduling such an event during December has proved to be a challenge, so the trip will now take place in January as a one-day event. The firm Kimley Horn was hired to conduct the study. An advocacy organization called the Community Climate Collaborative has arranged for many of its staff and volunteers to ask council to make a decision before the report is concluded. You can read more from their blog post for November 21st to learn more. A final report from Kimley Horn will be given at a future work session. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second Patreon-fueled shout-out, the holidays are here, and the friends of Charlottesville Downtown and the Charlottesville Albemarle Convention and Visitors Bureau are ready for another season of Magic on the Mall. Festivities began a couple weeks ago, and there's more coming up later this weekend. There will once again be something for every member of the family. The Jolly Holly Trolley will be running up and down the mall from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays through December 23rd. You can take free selfies with Santa from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th. Go on a magical scavenger hunt to find the elves in Seaville by starting a Charlottesville Insider or downloading it online. Follow the Peppermint Trail where you can find all sorts of treats. Downtown businesses will have a festive face-off in the Best in Snow window competition, and you can vote for the jolliest. And celebrate with the Shabbat House of UVA the fourth night of Hanukkah with a menorah lighting and traditional foods. Visit friendsofseville.org to learn more. One more segment today, and honestly, I wish I'd had more time to finish this, but time simply ran out. Tonight is the public hearing for the City of Charlottesville's Development Code, which follows several work sessions, including one on November 29th, at which city councilors went through the zoning map to review specific roads and streets. But at the start of the meeting, Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook raised a question on how the city's entrance corridors will come into play. Under the current rules, the Planning Commission acts as a body that reviews projects in these areas against the city's design standards. This is called the Entrance Corridor Review Board. 
I note that virtually every entrance corridor that we've got in the city is being designated for CX-8 or in some cases NX-10 if you look at Barracks Road. And my question is uh, sort of a, a philosophical question of if we do that, what's left of our entrance corridor review scheme? Snook said the city's attorneys have told him that the Entrance Corridor Review Board might not have any power to change the massing and size of a building as the draft ordinance becomes the development code. You can sort of tweak around the edges to make it slightly less objectionable, but if it's objectionably too large, that's not something that the Entrance Review Corridor Board, or Entrance Corridor Review Board uh, can handle. If every time you enter the city, you're greeted on both sides by an 11-story building, I'm not sure that that's exactly what we want to be doing as a city. Snook said one of the purposes of the Seville Plans Together initiative has been to eliminate the number of reviews that development projects would have to go through. But the Planning Commission recommended the ECRB remain in place. James Fries is the city's director of Neighborhood Development Services. And ultimately, the Planning Commission did make the decision that the, the, the value they saw in having that design review... Uh, um, having that design review on the entrance corridors outweighed, in their minds, the cost that it imposed on development projects. And so they opted to retain the entrance corridors within the zoning ordinance. Snook also said council had to take into consideration the University of Virginia's World Heritage Site status from the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. UVA has recently signaled their displeasure at large developments at Stadium Road and at 2117 Ivy Road. When we incentivize building everything to the max, what we're likely to get is everything built to the max. And I don't think that our uh, housing shortage is so acute that it matters greatly to that to the, to the satisfaction of the demand whether uh, 2117 Ivy Road contains 400 students but has the freedom to look better than it does with 600. Fries said he didn't see anything in the development code draft that would limit the Planning Commission's review as the Entrance Corridor Review Board. Both Fries and outside counsel Sharon Pandak said the Entrance Corridor guidelines need to be updated. I think the answer is that if you should clarify to the extent that you want to, outside of the guidelines, what exactly the ARB can do within the confines of this ordinance. Pandak said the other option would be to clearly delineate what stepbacks and setbacks would be required to address concerns of imposing buildings. The draft development code has very limited setbacks, and there are either no requirements for stepbacks or these are also limited. Basically, your legal issue is one in which it would be helpful to us to have greater clarity from counsel as to those things that you absolutely want those things where we should articulate better the discretion of the ARB, and then you have waiting out there once you finish this effort, the guidelines. Councillor Brian Pinkston said Snook's issues could have been raised earlier in the process. I mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but it seems like that sort of... I shouldn't say the ship has sailed. The ship doesn't sail until we, you know, let it leave port. But 
you know, when when this was conceived with with the planning commission and the consultants, they they evidently wanted it to be packed as tightly as possible. Pinkston suggested that guidelines might help with Snook's concern, but said those may take time to develop. Snook suggested one idea might be to reduce all of the corridors to commercial mixed-use 5 until the new guidelines are in place. He said he's become more passionate about the issue since the joint public hearing with the Planning Commission on 2117 Ivy Road in November. He did some research into what the University of Virginia's plans are for the Emmett-Ivy Corridor, and specifically the nearby Karsh Institute of Democracy. And I remember thinking, first of all, it doesn't look anything like Monticello in the Rotunda, but it has some connection in style, you know, brick and things like that. And it looks like it would be a really beautiful building. And I'm thinking somebody there has a value that they're placing on beauty. As an aside, the University of Virginia, City of Charlottesville, and Albemarle County used to have a public forum where planning issues were discussed in public, but it was discontinued in November 2019 in favor of a closed body group where reporting details to the public is discouraged except for once or twice a year. There is no longer any formal public process where top officials interact in public to discuss this issue or any other issue. The Land Use and Environmental Planning Committee is the name of the group that replaced the Planning and Coordination Council, and they last met on November 17, 2023. There are no elected officials on the body, and reports are usually only given in writing and seldom discussed. Charlottesville has four members of this group, but only two were able to attend in November based on the minutes. Now, back to entrance corridors. Vice Mayor Juan Diego Wade sought to find a compromise to move forward. What can we do now to address, if we can address his, his concerns now? Let's go back to one of the takeaways from the November 1st work session, at which council appeared willing to reintroduce legislative approval back into the process in a more significant way than had been envisioned. At that November 1st work session, Councillor Michael Payne suggested requiring a special exception or special use permit for more parts of the city as a way of preserving existing businesses. However, this following quote is from November 29th. I don't think a discretionary process means that an upzoning did not occur and is the worst thing in the world as a trade-off, but I don't think there's something we need to 100% eliminate. I think we're drastically reducing the number of discretionary processes versus where we are today, which is generally good. But Payne disagreed with his fellow councillors and said that reducing all entrance corridors to CX-5 would be draconian. He said areas like Preston Avenue need special attention to avoid displacement by giving residents a voice, but said he did not think that Emmett Street in US 29 needed the same attention. The Kmart site is an example. If you actually had a residential built there, um, I don't think we would want to cap it at five stories and say there's not even a way you could go beyond oh, five stories. Council further discussed the idea where anything considered an entrance corridor would be CX-5 in the short term, while Council figure out how much power the entrance corridor review board should have. City Manager Samuel Sanders said it would be likely over a year before Fries could get back to that work. Because of other things that we know that you all want to uh, take a look at, short-term rentals is going to require some time and effort. Fries said that could take as much as 18 months. 
He also described how the special use permit process would look in the development code under Council's direction using NX-8 as an example. If, if Council were to implement this on a citywide level, we would leave, for example, the NX-8 in place and then in the height section of NX-8, it would offer a base height and then it would say by SUP up to this height. You know, eight. So if it's NX8, it would say base height, five stories, um, uh, with SUP up to eight stories, something along those lines. Something like right? that. And so that's how it works. So depending on what district you're in, it would that number would change. Snook said that would work for him, and the rest of council agreed to proceed, except for along US 29 North. Now, exactly what's in the development code? Like, is this stuff I just wrote codified anywhere? Good question. Councillors continued to discuss various parts of the map on November 29th, and I don't think there was any full summary of what changes councillors have sought in the red line draft that's the subject of tonight's public hearing. For instance, the extent of the corridor neighborhood overlay district has not been mapped. There's a lot that I really wanted to get to, and I don't think I've nailed down this story. But I don't think the city of Charlottesville has either. And here we are at the end of another edition in which I'm not entirely happy with the last segment. And I wish there was more time in the day, the week, the month, and the year, maybe a lifetime. The city of Charlottesville is about to change its rules for development in a way that only people who get paid to study the rules will know exactly what the rules say. Maybe that's always been the case. Maybe we need more journalism about how all of this fits together. Why is this such an attractive place for people to live? What kind of people? Why do population forecasts continue to project upwards? Is the system of local government that we have in place really working? Why was the city council race not competitive this year? Does any of this actually matter? I don't know, but I know my job is to take my doubt and turn it into questions, which eventually ends up in stories, but the amount of information to process is a lot. Thank you very much, and we'll be back for 611 tomorrow or the next day.